I'm Andrew Knight, and you're listening to the Music Therapy Research Podcast. In this podcast episode, I'm pleased to share my discussion with Joy Allen, PhD, who is the new chair of music therapy at Berklee College of Music in fall 2016. She was previously teaching at Loyola University in New Orleans, where she also received her bachelor uh, degree and then went to Temple for her master's and PhD. Alan has more than 17 years of experience as an accomplished music therapist. She has served as a clinician, supervisor, a researcher, a teacher, and administrator with extensive experience in psychological health, pain management, and the family system. Her current research focuses on the effects of music therapy on the psychological health of medical patients through guided imagery and medical music therapy development and efficacy. There's a lot to talk about in this particular episode. We're excited about all of the work that's, that she's been doing in terms of developing research and her vision for research, uh, not just for Berkeley College of Music, not just for the Boston and the Northeastern area of the United States, but also for music therapy and various populations in general. And she gives some very good advice for upcoming music therapy researchers and clinicians interested in getting into research. So without further ado, I'll present to you my discussion with Dr. Joy Allen. Pleased to be joined today by Dr. Joy Allen, Chair of the Music Therapy Department at Berkeley College of Music. And Dr. Allen, I'm wondering if you'd start with a little uh, update for us on how you got into music therapy as a profession and then what took you into the area of being interested in research, whether that was uh, while you were still an undergraduate at Loyola or, or during your graduate studies at Temple, or where did that happen along the line? Certainly, and I would say that what got me into the field is, you know, typical with what you hear from other people is that being a musician and studying music as a child and an adolescent and seeing the power of the music not only that you were performing and its effects on other people, but also within yourself and what music does for you, you know, whether it was, you know, reminiscing with a friend, um, connecting with you on a different level emotionally or really capturing an experience or a moment in time. And so when I was trying to figure out that big old question on what I wanted to be when I grew up, I was exploring different avenues in music, knew I didn't necessarily want to be a a full-time performer, and believe it or not, came across a book written by Charles Braswell at a community college library (laughs) when I was in high school, which is quite unique because you wouldn't expect to find a book there on music therapy back in those days. Right. And um, I just so happened to be going to, my my father was happening to go to New Orleans, and um, said, well, you know, the Loyola University's down there. Why don't you come check out, check it out? And um, just fell in love with what I was learning about what music therapy was and it's the ability to use music to meet needs on a different level. So I went and did my undergrad in music therapy. The funny thing is, is that as an undergrad, and I don't think this is that uncommon with a lot of our students, is I said I never wanted to do research. <laughs> and... I just wanted to work clinically and, you know, research was great, whatever, but 
it took away from what was actually taking place in a session. So, you know, I didn't, I felt like research minimized the impact or didn't really capture the unfolding of an experience as well as the unfolding of what was taking place clinically. Um, so fast forward then, right after my internship, I was working, and then you really start to see clinically what's taking place. And um, at my first job, you know, I would see these amazing effects, but then you start to question. And the next thing you know, you're using that scientific model. <laughs> and, you know, I know this works. I don't know quite how it works. Or I, I know this works, but I need, to, I need to prove it to myself because, you know, it's not enough. And decided to go to grad school and really learn not only more advanced clinical skills, but how do I research in a way that still answers my own questions and my own curiosities, but also doesn't take away from the client experience and its unfolding. I didn't want to... I hate to use the word dehumanize, but I didn't want to lose that aspect of you know, them being a number in a study. Right. So that's where I landed up in grad school. And then um, the funny thing was is for um, after I finished my master's, and I continued to work clinically all through grad school, I decided to pursue my Ph.D. specifically to gain advanced research skills. So I knew then that, you know, I had the research bug and just really enjoyed investigating for not only my own curiosity and validation, but also to really show the impact that music has on others. I wonder if, and I agree with you about the student part of it, you know, I'm not, I wonder if we are really not just even uh, it's not even necessarily like tabula rasa in terms of when it comes to instilling the desire for research or even or just a general even um, understanding of research a an appreciation for it um, before even the graduate level for music therapy but but you're saying in particular there was some uh, and it, it's interesting it sounds like it's you're saying it's from your lack of um, or you, you're, you're feeling that research had a lack of entirety to it, that it couldn't see the yeah. full picture, and therefore uh, it's, it has this, like you said, dehumanizing or depersonalizing or whatever yeah, you wanted to say to say, it. So that was, you know, I was an undergrad, what, 17, 18 years ago, and I think part of it too, and I see it in some of our students, is that um, you know, part of you has this naivety where you, believe what is being presented to you and but the other thing is I think within we're, we're learning so much we're seeing so much and we see it in action and we can get intimidated by the research if we don't know how to read it or understand it or how to look at it through a critical lens um, you know and you know kind of going off of that Andrew and if I'm if I may mm -hmm. is that I think um you know, now if we look at it, we have so much, we have a plethora of research in so many different areas and so many different types of research, whether it's descriptive, quantitative, qualitative, um, so on and so forth, that I think the more we expose students to those types, but at the same time, 
teach them how to read the research in a way that's not overwhelming to them. Like, how do you immediately get to the purpose and the method and the results without getting caught up with the words that you don't understand or the statistical test you don't understand, but you can capture the essence of it? And I think then we, it becomes less scary or intimidating um, versus this thing that I don't want to be bothered with because it's potentially overwhelming or I just want to do or be with someone. I don't want to have to you know, examine on a different level. Right. That makes any sense. Yeah. And, you know, so I think there's also an interesting aspect of how students choose to go to places. So you're at Berkeley yeah. now, but you had a choice, um, or maybe you didn't really have a choice. Maybe there was just something about, uh, it was Temple all the way for you and, and you recognize a certain aspect of research and, and research leadership mm-hmm. coming out of that university. And so yeah. maybe if you could talk about what was it about the research nature of what you wanted to accomplish graduate school and, and are there aspects of that? If I can ask a second part of the question that you want to bring into the, the program that you're now chairing at Berkeley. I think that's absolutely a great, great question because now more so than ever, you know, individuals and professionals have a choice of graduate schools and they do their research and you'll see that there are certain schools that lend towards a certain type of research or a certain expertise in an area of practice. And, um, you know, I was led to Temple particularly because of the work that Cheryl Dilio and Ken Brucher were doing, which were, you know, not complete opposite sides, but the, but the, the focus more on the psychodynamic and the biopsychosocial aspect of work. Mm. Um, so more on the theoretical philosophy um, that they employed within their, their teaching methods as well as within their own um, work as therapists and researchers. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in terms of, you know, the types, the, the great thing that about Temple's program is that you had the opportunity to study quantitative and qualitative research. It just They were separate courses so that you weren't just getting this quick, exposure you were really engaged in the materials and what it means how to do it how to conceptualize as well as the benefits and values of each so it was in my opinion very balanced um, versus one side or the other and I think that you know allows you as a clinician as a, a researcher to really see the benefits of both um, you know and if I bring that into Berkeley's program you know, certainly we, you know, one of the, the great things about Berkeley's program is it's, we do not take equivalency students. So everyone is practicing music therapist, which does allow them to have that clinical experience and expertise. So you, we have, we're fortunate enough that the research that our students are engaging in is clinic-based research. And it's really fascinating to me because it's different from what my experience were, was at Loyola. And the beauty of that is that they can share with each other and and learn from each other and decide where they are on that level of you know evidence within the research. So if I could back up a minute, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I like to think about, um, Tony Wigram did, it was a great publication years ago and 
I don't remember the the exact citation, but what he had put forth was and had to do with evidence-based practice. And if you think of, I like to put things into triangles, um, kind of based off of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that he talked about was the hierarchy of research, and you know what what is the most important, what is the most valued, and. Within that, you know, if you think about at that bottom foundation, it's that expert opinion. You know, without that expert opinion, you can't get to the Cochrane reviews. You know, without that clinical expertise of some of a clinician doing the work, engaging in the work, and seeing how, you know, based on previous studies, based on um, their own experiences working with a set population with set methods, we can't get to, you know, the systemic reviews. So we build that foundation of expert opinion and go from there, case studies and case series. And then from there, you know, qualitative to quantitative to systemic reviews and meta-analysis to, you know, what we have now is the Cochrane reviews that um, are coming out very fast. It seems like every, every couple of months we have a new Cochrane review, which is phenomenal. So, you know, and I, I'm bringing that up because then I think it's important You know, if I go back to that, you know, my own experiences in being overwhelmed with research, not knowing quite how to understand it or do it as an undergrad, that if we, if we realize that there's a way, you know, we have to start on a certain level and where we are, we can build from that. And if we work with students to understand that, you know, first you have to be that expert um, within the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, building upon it so that they realize, you know, here I am, you know, at Children's Hospital doing this amazing work, and that does have value to it. And then I can take that to the next step, and maybe I, you know, write a couple of case studies. And from there, we can start picking up more trends and more interesting facts, and we've got our scientific lens on, and we can build those quantitative studies and that have, you know, validity to them, that the method section is well-defined and, and move forward from that. So I think one of the great things that, you know, Berkeley with being able to work with professionals with, you know, three, four, five, six, sometimes 10, 15 years experience as music therapists before they're coming into the program is that they have this expertise in what they're doing. So we're just helping shape that to see what it is that makes sense for what they are interested in um, in their own inquisitive minds. Right. Yeah. The uh, student-centered approach to research. What are they interested yeah. in, and see if that if they can that can be sort of internalized or yeah. get, that intrinsic motivation can kick in. Absolutely. Yeah, and I strongly believe they have to have that passion about what you're doing, mm-hmm. or you just run in circles. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, so, what is the passion that you had when you were coming out of your? When you're coming out of Temple with the PhD this time, if we could get to that point in your career, sure. you you had to figure something out. Uh, you know, all of us PhDs get kicked out of the nests <laughs> at some at some <laughs> yeah, point, and, and I know I still miss it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it doesn't mean we don't miss it. Yeah, but yeah. there is a there is that. All right, you're out of the nest. Uh, we gave you all the tools, and you have to feel like mm-hmm. I actually know what I'm doing with these tools, whether they're the yeah. uh, statistics courses or the qualitative or the phenomenological mm-hmm. courses or whatever they are. So what, what were your research passions when you uh, left, uh, when you finished your PhD from Temple? 
Sure. So as a clinician, I've, I'd worked, you know, 10, 12, 13 years by the time I finished my PhD in medical. And, you know, to me, I love doing research that's developed right out of my work in the clinic. So one of the things that was always struck me as a as an individual and as a therapist is the life change that goes on when someone's experiencing a chronic illness. And, you know, to me, it was something that we that happens is that upon diagnosis, they do have this great support system, you know, everyone's coming to them to try to offer, you know, their support, their assistance, you know, they have doctors and nurses, depending on the degree of illness at that time that they have appointments with and that they're going to. But then as that slows down and the disease progresses, oftentimes, that kind of support waxes off. And you're left with this, you're not the same person anymore. And what do you do? And we see a lot with with chronic illnesses is that there's a change in identity. And through my own clinical work and seeing this happen, one of the things that often struck me is, you know, how do we, I know what we're working on and I know what the music can bring into and what the music can access and explore and to the point that we can transform and create new ways of being um, through the music, ultimately serving as metaphors for life. And that has really been my passion is how do we and refer to it as self-concept, you know, how, how self-concept is affected upon diagnosis with chronic illness and then vice versa, how do we come up with new ways of being? So we've gotten to the point in the medical research that and I'm going to use cancer for an example that we know, you know, three, four years past diagnosis, um, they're great, they're alive, they're very blessed that they, you know, they, they have their life, but life has changed and their role relationships have changed, their body image has changed, their self-esteem may be affected, but, you know, so they land up going to support groups, but the support groups don't necessarily meet those needs and there's this underlying constant fear of what happens if I relapse or, you know, the cancer comes back and I'm no longer in remission. So when my, when at the same time I was you know, working clinically and seeing this unfold, I was also studying guided imagery and music and really became fascinated with the potentials of group guided imagery and music, you know, working on self-concept and that is what um, I'm actually in the process of replicating right now is as- aspects of my dissertation. So my dissertation was on group music psychotherapy and improving the self-concept of breast cancer survivors. And we did get clinically significant results, but not always statistically significant results because of the low number of participants. Yeah, low so- power, right. Oh my gosh, yes. An <laughs> ongoing issue in music therapy. So what what I think is wonderful and one of the reasons why I was excited to come up to Boston is that there's more opportunities to collaborate with music therapists up here as well as there's more medical facilities compared to you know down in New Orleans so that we can have multi-site studies so that we can address the issues of low population in studies. It wasn't that you know, people didn't necessarily want to participate. You only have so many people that you can draw from. And, you know, being in a bigger metropolitan area, 
as well as connecting with other music therapists who, you know, practice GIM as well as um, work with medical patients. It provides that opportunity to collaborate and increase our our research in the area and see if we can if we can get statistically significant results and not just clinically significant results. And that's an area that really, you know, when you talk about uh, guided imagery in particular, uh, yeah. GIM, Bonnie method, uh, it's really, uh, you know, especially in the group setting, there isn't yeah. as much uh, research. So that was certainly, uh, no. seem, seems to be a niche that you were trying to uh, address. And now you're going to be able to do that maybe in, in these, you have to, that's the thing about research. You're going to have, to, even though you are in Boston, this very heavily populated area, great hospital yeah. systems and lots of music therapists, it still takes a kind of, it still takes a kind of um, creativity to really to try to figure yes. out a good methodology to to attack yeah. up the problem question here, right? Yeah, and, and one of the reasons why I wanted to do group is, you know, we can certainly do individual, and but the the aspect of group was key because we know that with cancer survivors, um, that peer support seems to have some kind of impact. So it was literally just curiosity, you know, let me try this and see what happens, um, you know, based on my knowledge of group work and GIM and my clinical experience with cancer patients. And it was an amazing, amazing unfolding of what took place in those sessions. And, um, and, you know, the other thing that is wonderful is that we have a decision tree that that we can use. And, you know, that's the other thing that we get into music therapy is that we need to have that clinical flexibility but yet we need to have something that is replicable for research purposes. <laughs> so putting together a clinical decision tree, which probably was the hardest aspect of the research, um, really has become key so that we can have that flexibility for decision making within a session, but yet still have um, the needed structure in order to ensure for um variables and replicability and um what have you and um i'm wondering you know when you let's say uh, you have a, a, a berkeley student who comes to your office and maybe mm-hmm. you did the same thing at loyola and you're reflecting on these experiences and they're mm-hmm. coming in saying i'm really interested in research i think i've got the bug just like you were talking about dr yeah. allen <laughs> what next for me how do you advise students uh, do you have a do you have a particular plan uh, you mentioned, you know, what finding out what their interests are and, and going for that yeah. intrinsically motivated part. But um, I'm wondering, um, do you usually think about, well, what would be logistically a, a good idea? Do you think, um, well, let's make sure you have some clinical experience. Maybe that maybe there isn't a, yeah. you shouldn't be too involved in research right now. Dig in mm-hmm. a little bit more rather than thinking about I want to do a study and jumping right to that aspect. Because when we say the word research, it's a million different yeah. things. It's it's looking Absolutely. at research, it's conducting research, it's reading research, understanding, and all these different things. So how do you uh, how do you uh, pl- or how have you been since it's been a couple of months mm-hmm. that you that you've been at Berkeley now? But what does that look like when that student comes and and sees you as sort of a research research mentor? I think the biggest thing that I always try to solicit from them is what is it that they're curious about? And then really helping them articulate that so that it's clear. So you could say, you know, I'm interested in it is 
you know, how many days a week does the sun shine in October? <laughs> okay, that's something we could we could measure, right? Versus I'm interested in the different shades of yellow the sun may be. Well, that's going to become more problematic. So if we, we take that into music therapy, if I'm interested in music and cancer, okay, so I need something more specific than that. Is there a particular element that you're interested in? Is there a particular, you know, aspect of music therapy and cancer? And I think particularly with the with the grad students, how we start is just saying, hey, where is that interest? And helping point towards resources that would help them further explore those interest areas. So, um, you know, for example, and this actually isn't a grad student, it's an undergrad student who came into my office today and said, can I just ask you a question? I really wanted to learn more about, you know, legacy and music and hospice patients. Mm. And I said, okay, so are we talking more about you know, working with a patient to leave a musical legacy for their family, or are we talking about, you know, musicians who might have a legacy? So it's, you're trying not to feed what you're thinking they're saying, but to get them to more clearly articulate mm -hmm. what it is. To Using help them your therapeutic find. verbal skills. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> not leading them. Exactly yeah. right. And then from there going, okay, so, you know, if I, then teaching them how to use things, okay. Um, sometimes the databases can be overwhelming. Why don't you start with Google Scholar or Hair? So in this case, I pulled out um, a chapter by Amy Clement Cortez that she wrote on hospice and music therapy. And then I gave him a list of different names of therapists that work in that area so he could get a feel for the different work that's been done. So if you point out, you know, for example, the work of Russell Hillard versus Noah Potvin, they're different, but they're both hospice, but it can help somebody see different ways that someone's coming at that research as well as what that research is capturing. Um, does that sort of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's really actually interesting, and I love talking about it. Obviously, this is the yeah. podcast, but, but at, yeah. at a certain point, you have that educator moment where I think the student's eyes are glazing over, and I'm giving them too much information. Yeah. I'm showing them there's, yeah. there's this, there's no, it's not as cut and dried as, you know, that student, yeah. for, as an example, didn't come in and said, I want to do a pre and post study and this is what it's going to look like. They don't walk in with their methodology. They just come in with some yeah. ideas of what they want to know, which isn't, you know, which is a great sort of pure yeah. form or pure understanding of, of research. Yeah. And it's hard not to get, not to jump too far ahead and go, all right, well, let's develop this. What can we do? And how many people do we need? Yeah. And, you know, those well, sorts of things. Think, yeah. I think the hardest challenge for me is not, not making it about what I would do, but having them, kind of figure out what makes sense to their own feelings and beliefs. Cause sometimes it's so easy, particularly when we get to the methodology section, if we go back to grad students to, to say, well, wait, you should do it this way, this way, and this way. But that might not be where they're connecting with and it's their research and you're there to support it, but obviously bring up issues if there's going, if that arise, but let them kind of work through it a little bit before we jump in and take over. Like the same when you see a student leading a session, it's that holding back before you jump in and take over um, what they're doing. Right. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a series of series of critical decisions on the educator's part, yeah. right? Thinking, what do I do so I don't overwhelm? What's the sweet spot? Where's their interest? Where's their ability yeah. uh, at this point? And, and, and moving forward from there too. So mm -hmm. um, let me ask a little bit more about um, 
your uh, research? Are there any particular? Yeah. Uh, are there any particular um, studies, uh, papers, that sort of thing that you'd like to highlight um, in particular? Whether it is part of that, um, part of that um, uh, support group or research that you were talking about, or some other areas? Well, you know, um, you know, in in specific regards to my research, I think the thing that I would like to highlight is that as a researcher, I learn so much by reading others' research. So it's um, it helps me understand different ways of thinking and different ways of of, of modeling that research. Um, you know, if I think about even with the breast cancer survivors and self concept in general, um, you know, it's important to not only read within the music therapy literature, but also within the um, the cancer literature which is just, you know, there's so more and more research coming out every day, which I think is fascinating. So it's making sure that I'm keeping up with that and helping it inform the work that I do and the decisions that I make as a researcher. Um, the only other thing I would really highlight, because I, I want to share one of my pet peeves with you if I can. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. So here's one of my pet peeves when, and I, I've been telling graduate students and undergraduate students this when it comes to research is that that method section, particularly when you're you're putting down the you know, what me, what you're doing, and you can't just put music therapy because we don't know what that means anymore. Mm. Um, so you know, there's a great there's a great article, and I'm not going to remember. I want to say it was Sherry Robb and and. Deb Burns yep. and Burns Rod and Carpenter. Right? Yep. Yay! Um, that really talks about how to clearly define what you're doing in the method section, and, and that should be someone's best friend at this point in making sure that you know. I find nothing more frustrating as a a clinician, a researcher, and an educator that when I'm reading an article and it just says music therapy, and I don't know what that means. Um, so making sure that you clearly define what it is that you're doing. And we have to get over the point that you know, we're way past the stage where we can say we need that clinical flexibility. You can build that clinical flex flexibility into that method section by saying, you know, I'm going to have a, a menu of options, A, B, C, D. <laughs> and one of those will be used based on, you know, whatever presenting area. So... You know, I encourage students and, you know, my colleagues is to make sure that we're, we're doing what we need to do as researchers so that the research that we are putting out there can be replicated and can be used in systemic reviews and Cochrane reviews because the method section is clearly outlined and developed. Mm -hmm. And, and what, to what end maybe is the next question that I, that I was yeah. thinking of, because, uh, especially you have this uh, chairship at, at Berkeley and you have yeah. some opportunities to sort of develop a vision for saying, yeah. what is music therapy going to look like in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever that looks like from an administrative mm -hmm. point of view. And, and to an extent you can, I assume you can work with your faculty as they are also instilling um, the idea of research. Where, do, where do you see uh, our research fitting in? And I'm, I'm asking specifically yeah. also in relationship to the AMTA uh, MTR, the music therapy research 2025, 
yeah. effort of here we are. What does it look like 10 years from now? But maybe even past that 10 years, 20 years, where does, uh, where do we need these, this next group of researchers that are studying under us now, where do they need to take our profession and how do they do that with research? Um, I think my goal, particularly in the next even two, four, five years is that, um, that we do more partnerships with the clinicians in the field. So in other words, academia does more partnerships with the clinicians so that we have more collaborative research. Um, I think that would help all of us immensely. It helps ensure that the research that we are doing is relevant to the you know, settings and clinicians and patients out there because we have people out there doing that work every day versus being sheltered um, you know, maybe shelter is not the right word versus being, um, you know, when you're in academia, you can get away from clinical work sure. um, because of the time constraints. And then, you know, sometimes we see research that's coming out that you question if that is even feasible within a particular setting based on how, you know, healthcare or, or educational settings are nowadays. Um, so it's my, my big thing would be is, you know, as a faculty, particularly at Berkeley, we have partnerships with over 60 um, settings within Boston that we have supervisors at and we have colleagues at and that I would love to see us really enhance the collaborations so that we, we are putting out more research and that the research that we are putting out starts adding to the, the efficacy of music therapy. Um, you know, even if it's starting out with small you know, pilot studies that we can continue to add to. But I think the more that we form those collaborative relationships with clinicians and researchers and, um, you know, really enhance that ability to work together in partnership, the better off we're going to be. I can, I can only imagine, especially when there's 60 local community organizations that that you have these existing partnerships and then, and then being able to develop that and go further. Um, is there a particular area that you think, uh, or a couple areas that you feel that that Berkeley is can, that Berkeley in particular can be uniquely suited to, um, to to helping out in Boston, but not just Boston, but for a particular population, uh, a, a target population that that music therapists can really look to in the next ten years and twenty years, let's say, and and they can go, you know, the research that's coming out of Berkeley is really amazing in this area. Can you see sure. one of the what area or areas that might look like? I could definitely see in medical, but in different aspects of medical. So we have, even on our faculty within our community, we have neurology as, experts. We have more of um, experts that are looking more on the social, emotional, and spiritual aspects of illness. And we have those that are working more on integrative medicine and the combination of different um, wellness and and different health modalities, whether it be yoga and meditation um, and mindfulness. So we, we kind of have this unique opportunity to look at the medical realm from the whole picture and not just one area. So combining the science, the art, and the music together. Um, the other, the great thing that we have, which I don't think we've done um, as much as we, we can, and particularly in the more recent years is that we have these incredible musicians who are really interested in the healing aspects of music. And I think we have a credit, an incredible opportunity to really develop, um, 
research and models of community music therapy um, within the Boston area, working with the richness of um, not only the community programs that we have, but also with the faculty that we have that really have done amazing work in developing the foundations within community music therapy, but haven't really had the opportunity to write or present about it. That's that's a good lead in that the the one of the last parts I wanted to really ask you about and that we do with all the um, the folks that we speak with on this podcast is is uh, do you have do you have a writing routine do you have writing um, some people like to set aside that time some people like to go to mm-hmm. the coffee shop what are the logistics of your um, of how you like to uh, for lack of a better term write research uh-huh. etc when you really want to dedicate yourself to it what does that look like for you and 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 is this yeah. uh, is this something that you're willing to share because <laughs> some people are like no here's what I do I wake up I don't I I don't do anything. I just flip over my laptop and I just type for five minutes and they don't really want to talk about how they do it before they brush their teeth or something. But, uh, well, but what do you like to do? Well, you know, the, you know, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. And one of the reasons why I came up to Berkeley is that I found myself getting more and more away from what I wanted to do in research because you get caught up in administrative work and you get caught up with other, um, you know, dealings in academia and, um, I felt like the part of me, part of me was not being fulfilled, and that was the research side. And I think you're, you're in academia; you can attest to this. Is what happens is that if you don't set aside that time, it's never going to come. So we often, you know, on social media, I'll be talking with colleagues who are friends, like, "How do you set aside time? How is it that you're able to get research done? Because it just seems like there's not enough time in the day." Um, so the thing that I'm doing right now and seems to be working is I literally schedule time for myself to do research. (laughs) And, and that might be me looking at articles. Um, that might be me actually writing, but it's scheduled in. And I like to work at coffee shops. I can't work in my office and I certainly can't work at home. Mm -hmm. So I find coffee shops that I can work at because it has noise in the background, but they're not going to interrupt you. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah. It's like the white noise of the Starbucks machine or something of the espresso machine. (laughs) Maybe sometimes. I, I will also be honest, you know, it, it really helps me to be part of a group of other people who are doing research. It doesn't have to be the same research, but it helps hold me accountable and inspires me when I hear what other people are doing. Um, so even if it's, um, you know, two or three people that you check in with one another and say, Hey, how's that going? Are you working on it? Or can you read this real quick and tell me what you think so that we have that camaraderie and that knowing that we're not in this alone. Mm. The other thing that I find incredibly helpful is conferences um, because it really, it like, fills your cup back up because you can get very exhausting and you feel like you're stuck sometimes when you're working in research as in, you know, same as when you're working clinically. So, you know, refilling that cup and networking and hearing what other people are doing and sharing your ideas and then that verbal sharing really helps spur other thoughts along. And so we are recording this the week before our annual AMTA conference, right? So the chances that somebody that uh, that there's going to be some 
um, some people exchanging research ideas um, while they're in line waiting to go down like a water slide at the Kalahari oh, Resort is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> eminently possible, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the buzz, of the, the hum of the activity of conferences is absolutely alluring to me because I just know that all the ideas that are that are percolating, I don't know how many of the ideas come to fruition, but I love the idea that, that, there, yeah. that there are so many of those ideas and people are really getting together and who knows what's going to come out of it and, what, and how that's going to germinate over the next you know six months to a year after after we leave a conference right yeah and i'm I'm literally sometimes you know it's kind of like when you you can't find the words and music helps it's i use the same concept in research like you have these ideas in your head you can't what do i do what do i do but sometimes just talking with someone about it um like hey have you thought about this or i saw this or you know, you just read someone else who did something similar. It's really inspiring and it helps you really formulate your concepts on a, on a deeper and more um, accessible way. And how did you come up with these different things? How did you come up with the idea that this is how I work best at a coffee shop? How do you come up with the idea of I need a writing group or something? Are these things that formed during your master's, your PhD? Is this something that came about when you got yourself to a more regular schedule uh, with your academic job at Loyola? Or or, or, or was it um, um, advice from um, some of your research mentors? Uh, I think it's a combination. And uh, to be honest... I, I will give my husband some credit too because he'll get on my case like, hey, you keep saying you want to do this and you're not doing it. Like you got to make time for it. Or, mm. um, But and part of it is knowing how you work best. You know, it's no different than do you work better in the morning or in the afternoon? Are you more effective, you know, um, in midday? Or do you need a block of time or can you write down chunks of time? So it's it's doing that. But I, But in terms of, you know, actually being productive. I think that's where being in a group has really helped me. And I realized that if I don't have others that I know that are working with me, I just seem to fall off the map. And I think part of that was through graduate school. And, you know, especially, you know, my program was a combination of distance and online. And you realized that when you were struggling the most was when you needed to reach out to others, but you tend to not do what you need. And so learning through those experiences that when you do get stuck to just throw out an email, Hey, do you have a moment just to look at this and give me feedback or can you talk for 15 minutes? Yeah. yeah. It's the accountability. It's no different yes. than uh, I need a person on the, who's going to be on the corner of the block at five thirty in the morning. If I'm going to go running those couple of miles yes. in the morning, too. it's, it's, it's amazing how much crossover there is to really having that, that peer support. Um, so the last uh, question that we always ask uh, our guests for the podcast here is to give a little mm-hmm. piece of advice to um, new researchers. So we talked yeah. a little bit about what if that student uh, at Berkeley comes into the office and they've got a plan, but but uh, let's say you, you get to reach out to them now and you get to reach out to people who aren't necessarily at Berkeley or maybe thinking about um, maybe they're in that same place that you were talking about that I, I know I love clinical work, but I just can't see myself being involved with research, do you, how would you pitch that to them in terms of here's how mm-hmm. you can get started with this big word of research, whether it's writing or looking it up or conducting it? Absolutely. So two, two statements I use a lot is keep it simple. Um, oftentimes we think we need to do this really complex, complicated study and we get lost and then we don't even know what we're measuring anymore. So keep it simple. Start somewhere. 
And second of all, you don't have to label yourself. And, you know, research in the clinic, think of it this way. When you're doing, you know, you're going to go see a client for pain management. And part of that assessment is pre and post um, pain levels. Mm -hmm. And simply collecting pre and post pain levels over a week to show clinical effectiveness is a form of research mm-hmm. and keep that in mind. Um, and part of being a good clinician is keeping up with the research and asking those questions and being inquisitive and in that you don't have to be all knowing. You don't have to know statistics in depth and be able to run SPSS and know how to, you know, figure out a T test. But what you do know, what you do have value in is that without the work that you're doing, we're not able to design studies that really capture the effectiveness of music therapy and the benefits that we have to our clients. And that's what the beauty of nowadays that we have more music therapists and more educators is that there are those opportunities for collaboration. So, you know, don't label yourself, keep it simple. Think about what you do on an everyday basis that has elements of research into it, into it, and then build off there. I'd say excellent research moving forward for uh, for the listeners. Thanks very much for for that uh, bit of advice. Thank you so much for joining me for a little discussion about uh, music therapy research. Congratulations on on your uh, new position as chair of the music therapy department at Berkeley. And and again, enjoy conference next week. It'll be a blast, I'm sure. Thank you. This has been the Music Therapy Research Podcast associated with musictherapyresearchblog.com. Your hosts are Dr. Blythe Lagasse and Dr. Andrew Knight, music therapy faculty members at Colorado State University. Follow MTRB on Facebook and your hosts on Twitter to stay up on all the music therapy research we send out into the world. If you enjoyed the podcast, please let us know by heading to iTunes and submitting a review and a rating. It only takes a minute and helps our visibility on the iTunes page tremendously. Thanks in advance. Also, send in a comment about the podcast on the contact page at musictherapyresearchblog.com. Music